You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. I often find it interesting how we find ourselves doing the things we never really thought we'd do. Two years ago when I came home for a Christmas break, my dad said, hey, Nick, you want to preach? And I was like, uh, no. <laughs> and here I am. So for those of you who don't know me, which I'm guessing is very few of you, if any of you, I, my name is Nick. I am John and Audrey Larson's son. I have been going to Boise Bible College for the past two and a half years. I am halfway through my junior year, and I am currently studying Christian teaching there. And I took my intro to preaching class this last semester, and through that I was offered the chance to preach in Fort Benton next week. And when I told my dad that, he said, you want to preach here the week before? And my first response was, what? <laughs> and then I, I thought, sure, why not? So today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. So most of us have probably spent a large amount of time with certain people or one specific person. And these, these people that we spend the most time with are the people who are going to shape our interactions and our mannerisms and our responses. For example, some of you probably know Adam Houghton. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he, he used to work at Pine Haven a few years ago. And I thought of him as a friend and a mentor for quite some time. But after, after a while of spending, spending time with him, people began to comment that I was speaking like he spoke. The main quirk of speech that stuck out to most people was the word gotcha, which I was, that, was not a, that was not a word I would have used before uh, my time with him. He, he, I began to look a little bit like him as he helped shape me, both physically and spiritually. Later, as I, after I went to BBC, I began to hang out with a group of people who would use the phrase fair enough to express any kind of agreement with each other. And despite my preaching professor's dislike of this phrase, because, I mean, it can't be more fair or less fair, it either, it's either fair or it isn't. Despite his dislike of this phrase, I began to adopt it into my speech, and it became somewhat a natural, natural part of my speech. It wasn't intentional. These things just happened naturally. And as I interacted with these people, my life began to look more like them. It's similar, that, our similar, it's similar to our walk with Christ. As we grow, we're supposed to look more like Christ. And Paul writes about the Christian's life and walk in Ephesians 4. And if you're following along, we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 17. He says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, which is which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So first of all, this passage is giving us a summary of the way in which Christians should live. 
According to this passage, there are supposed to be specific differences between the lives of Christians and the lives of unbelievers. And these must be apparent in the lives of us as Christians. So first of all, we must look like Christ in our mindset. Since the Ephesians had become Christians, they needed to change, they, change the way they looked at reality. When they were unbelievers, they had a somewhat, a somewhat skewed and broken sense of reality. And that's the way we were as well before we became Christians. Our former mindset is described by Andrew Lincoln, a scholar on Ephesians, as moral bankruptcy, since we're not necessarily bound by the same kind of guidelines that we are when we accept Christ. Before we accepted Christ, we didn't have the same guidelines, and so essentially we were morally bankrupt. This sense of reality that we had when we were unbelievers, it's described here in verse 19 as calloused and desensitized to unbelief and what that did to us when we were unbelievers. Many times people who are not Christians, possibly us before we became Christians, don't realize that God can change our mindset and he can change our way of thinking and give us new life. They, we may have, we may have been, maybe we were around Christians who instead of influencing us towards Christ, they pushed us away from Christ because of their behavior or their mindsets. But the word here for callous means meaningless or empty. Our lives were empty without Christ. And here Paul is saying that when we were unbelievers, we had nothing to give us guidance in our everyday lives. And we had a false understanding of reality. Because truth is only found in Christ, our, lack, our former lack of a proper relationship with God prevented us from understanding reality. But now that we are Christians, our mindset has completely changed. Our lives are no longer meaningless or empty. We have a new way of life. We're called to be separate from the world. But since we're not made completely new until we reach eternal life in heaven, we must be continually renewed in the spirit of our mind, as it says here in verse 23. Now, this concept of being renewed and continually renewed is not specific to this section or even to the Ephesians since Paul also makes this idea clear in his letter to the Romans. He says in chapter 12, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, when we continue in the renewing of our minds, this continual process, we're drawn closer to God's will and to what God wants for us in our daily lives. We become more like Christ as we intently focus our minds on that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now these things are a part of the nature of Christ. So through the renewing of our minds, we come to view reality as the truth that is in Jesus, as it says here. And truth doesn't exist apart from him. He's the only way that anything we know exists. And so when we grow in Christ, we see the truth that is in him, and we see it like he does. But we also develop our view of God, not just our understanding of reality, but our view of God. Before we took our first step towards God, we were somewhat ignorant of him. And this ignorance is described as formerly excluding us from the new life which God had, has to offer. When we were unbelievers, we, hadn't, we had no part in that new life. And our life as unbelievers was, is also described as being deceived by our own desires since we weren't convicted by the Holy Spirit of God. Think of it, our sin, our sin blocked our view of God. So think of it as 
the way you can look up at a mountain. We have the mountains here, and you can look up at them, and you can see them off in the distance. You can be in awe of their wonder and their majesty. But suppose you're, you have a house in between you and these mountains. Now, if you're standing very close to the house, you're right up next to the wall of the house, that house can completely block out your view of the mountain. You can't see the mountains anymore. You can't, I mean, you might be aware that they're there somewhat, but you, have, but you may not be aware of what they look like. You may not be aware of anything about them. But if you take a step back from that house, then you can see the mountains. You can see, their, their, you can be in awe of them, of their majesty. And this is actually similar to how we, how we see God. See, when we were unbelievers, our sin blocked our view of God, similar to the house blocking our view of the mountain. Our sin blocked our view of him, and we were, we were somewhat ignorant of him. But when we became Christians, it's like we took that step back, and now we're able to see God. We, can, we can't obviously fully understand him, but we're more aware of him than we were when we were unbelievers. And since we are now, we now have this relationship with God, we're aware of God, and through growing in Christ, we come to be more in harmony with God. Paul stated that the Ephesian believers had been taught Christ in a different way. They, they understood Christ, not like they did when they were unbelievers. They didn't understand him then. But now, since they had been taught, since they had been taught Christ, they understood him differently, and they had been taught the truth that is in him. Now, this knowledge of Jesus goes back to the renewing of our minds, which is a continual process that takes place throughout our lives. And we must take care not to fall back into that mindset, which we once embraced when we were unbelievers. Formerly, we embraced that mindset of, honestly, ignorance of God. So, first of all, now that we are Christians, we're called to look like Christ in our mindset, which we continually shape through Christ's teaching, through the Bible, as a process of renewing our minds. That's what his teaching does. It's designed to renew our minds and shape our mindset and our understanding of God. Now, through this process, we're growing closer to Christ. And like I mentioned before, that helps us look more like him. But changing our mindset, just changing the way we think, is not enough. This teaching about Christ and our change in thought has to have some kind of effect in our lives. We can't just change the way we think and expect that to be all there is necessary. We can't simply learn about him and not change anything else. Our knowledge of him has to produce a change in our lives. We have to be shaped by him. And that brings us more into a relationship with God. This shaping, this relationship with God, results in a change on our actions. And these actions are a result of becoming more like Christ which means we're also called to look like him in our actions. It's a fact of being a Christian that we're called to, look, to act differently than unbelievers. That's what the name of the church means. It means the people who are called out, the called out ones. But this doesn't always happen, unfortunately, and incidents where Christians demonstrate less than Christian character are often flaunted in front of the church as examples of typical Christian conduct. That's not what it's supposed to be. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. Paul says that now that we are Christians, we act differently than unbelievers, than we did when we were unbelievers. Formerly, we had no reason to avoid sin. 
Before we became Christians, some of us may have hung out with the wrong crowd, as some people say. And similar to the people I mentioned earlier, the people that shaped the way I spoke, shaped my actions, it's all too easy to let some people influence our actions. And it can often be in a negative way. And when that happens, our behaviors begin to look like those people, often negatively. When we were unbelievers, there was no reason not to go along with the crowd, as, as people say, and do whatever we wanted. We were essentially ignorant of God, as I said before, and that resulted in a lack of self-awareness. We didn't have the self-awareness that the knowledge of God offers. Before we became believers, we simply devoted ourselves to whatever we wanted to do, often without much of a conviction that what we were doing is wrong. Again, referring to the commentary on Ephesians, we formerly hardened our consciences to the point where we could no longer actually feel guilt for our actions. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. I'm not saying that unbelievers can't become Christians, because otherwise none of us would be here. So, what am I saying, though? Those who have deliberately hardened their hearts against Christ don't feel guilt for their actions anymore. We, didn't, we used to not feel guilt for our actions. It could be things we considered small or things that people consider big, but whatever it was, we still engaged in sin. And that further alienated us from God. And we, when we were unbelievers, we had no reason to change our actions. We had no reason to avoid sinning. But Paul paints us this picture of the society around us. He, he describes all the things that go, around in our, that go on in our society, this, these things that go on around us, things we may have engaged in when we were unbelievers. But he exhorts us, he encourages us to rise above this society and make our behaviors contrast with those around us. And we, as Christians, and in contrast to society, we have God's law as our reason to avoid sin. Our, that's our guide. God's law is our guide, and it helps us to avoid sin. And Paul implied that when the Ephesians became Christians, they completely split off from their former way of life. They had nothing to do with that anymore. They no longer acted the way they formerly did when they were unbelievers. That's what God wants for us, too. Now that we've become Christians, we completely split off from our former way of life, from our former mindset, and the things we formerly did as unbelievers. We, that's how we're not supposed to act, though. It seems that this passage is giving us a lot of how we're not supposed to act. So what are we supposed to do? How do we know how, do we know how we are supposed to act? We have Christ as our example for our actions. The life he lived during his earthly ministry set the example for us to follow in our daily lives. We're called to follow his example in our everyday actions. And this example also leads us to put on the new self, as Paul says in verses 22 through 24. He says, In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now once again, Paul is comparing the state, our former state as unbelievers to our state now as Christians. And in this case, the old self, Paul mentions here, is the sinful nature, our sinful nature before we accepted Christ, and we were redeemed through the blood of Christ. Now, since it is sinful, it's being corrupted. It's moving toward the fate decreed by God for sin and, 
and sinners, which is ultimately eternal destruction. It's passing away. This, this old nature is corrupt. But this self, this nature, tries to take us with it. It tries to lead us down that path as well. But that was our state before we were believers. That's not our state now. And what that means is we, as Christians, should have nothing to do with it. Because we've changed our behavior, we've also changed our identity. Did you hear that in here? We've changed our identity. We don't belong to sin and death any longer. That's an amazing thing. We've been made new. Sin no longer controls us. We no longer have that old nature. But as Christians, we're called to put on the new self, not the old self that we've completely split off from, but the new self. And this involves a conscious effort on our part. At baptism... We put on this new self, which works in conjunction with the renewing of our minds that I mentioned before. But even though we lose that old self once and for all, we've, ta- we've completely gotten rid of that. We have, to, we have to put on the new self, which is designed to be renewed continually. We put on a new self, which is renewed continually. Which may seem a little bit confusing, but let me try to make it clearer. And I did ask my brother before I'm about to tell this story. Last weekend, I was hiking with my brothers at the top of the ranch. And on our way down, it was, an ama- it was an amazing day for a hike. We had a lot of fun up until this point. On the way down, my brother Nate slipped and fell, and he cut his leg on a fence post. And we had, we had to figure out how to get him off the mountain and whatnot. That was an experience. But we put a makeshift bandage on his leg. But once we actually got him off the mountain, we got him into Missoula, we ha- the doctor put on a new bandage, not to mention stitches. But this, new, this bandage was not meant to be permanent. He had to take off the dressing the next day, and he had to put new bandages on. He had to keep doing that. He's going to have to keep doing that until that wound heals. But this is, sim- this is similar to our new self. Just like the bandage on a wound, our new self needs to be renewed again and again and again. But one day we'll be eternally renewed in heaven. So just like the bandage on a wound, we, gotta, we have to keep renewing ourselves, renewing our new self, until that day when we are eternally renewed in heaven. But this putting on of our new self continually results in a change in our actions. Since we no longer belong to sin, we've been made new. We're no longer free to live only in the way we want to live as we formerly did when we were unbelievers. But now that we're no longer bound by sin, we no longer belong to sin and death. We are free to live for Christ. It's a matter of integrity, which integrity simply means we're fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. And in this case, that purpose is to present the character of Christ to the world. So whatever we do, no matter what situation we're in, we're called to look like Christ in these actions. And Paul states that we're supposed to look like him in our actions, but he differentiates this from our interactions with other people. He separates our actions from our interactions. Now, unless you're the most extreme version of an introvert, you're going to have interactions with other people and towards other people. It's unavoidable. It's part of our world. Now, some people might find it easy to act like Christ when people aren't watching, but it's also important to look like Christ in our interactions with other people. In verses 25 through 32, Paul gives us specific instructions on the way our interactions with other people should change when we become Christians. And he says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, 
Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, first of all, in this section, Paul is exhorting the Ephesian believers to be kind to one another, treating each other as Christ would treat people. He contrasts the type of behavior exhibited by society around us, that behavior that we engaged in when we were unbelievers. Since our society, and we formerly, doesn't, we didn't have the same guidelines as we do now. The society around us is full of deception. We see that in so many places, just deception in, in so many places like corporate, work, corporate workplace and things like that. But since we're called to change our behavior since we've become Christians, we are no longer to do so. We're no longer to engage in deception like the society around us does. Instead, we are to speak to each other with honesty. And the act of replacing a lie with the truth builds up the church since a lie tears the church apart. Instead of lying, Christians are called to be honest with each other, to encourage trust between each other, because that's what will build up the church, the truth, and the trust between each other. We're also called to avoid sinning in anger. Now, in this passage, it's allowed for Christians to become angry. We, we've all become angry. Even Jesus became angry at some points. But what is not allowed in this section, what Christians are called not to do, is we are called to not sin in our anger. We can be angry, yet do not sin. To avoid this, Paul encourages us to settle our differences quickly. And honestly, I have done exactly the opposite on a number of occasions. I've held on to my anger against some person, and I've let, I've let that just sit there and basically boil over at some point. I've allowed my anger to stay with me, and that's hurt my interactions with people on a number of occasions. This never goes well in the long run and has often hurt my relationship with those people. I'm still learning that forgiving the other person is an essential part of showing Christ-like behavior toward other people. But third, Paul commands that those who were engaged in stealing before they became Christians should now do something productive. Even Paul engaged in physical labor on his missionary journeys. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and with hardship we kept working day and night, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. But this was designed to be a means of not only supporting oneself, but also supporting those who are in need. It's an amazing demonstration of a change in mindset and action when a person becomes a Christian. Formerly, the, the unbeliever would say, what's yours is mine, I'm going to take it. And now that we're Christians, we say, what's mine is yours, I'll give it to you. In each of these principles, as we grow closer to God, our, in, our interactions with other people should look more and more like this. 
And all of these are essentially based on treating others as we want, as we want to be treated. So what people call the golden rule, which we find in Matthew 7. It says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. But these actions we've looked at so far have mostly been about avoiding conflict with others, about avoiding negative interactions. But how are we supposed to have positive interactions with other people? Well, Paul tells us next, in the next verses, we also have to seek to benefit each other in imitation of Christ. Now, the first way to do this, we've talked about a little bit already, it's to share with one another. And Paul commands this of the person who was formerly stealing, was formerly a thief, but it applies to the entire church. The early church met the needs of the believers at that time by having all things in common. And in Acts 2, it says that all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So in this verse, we're also called, today, we're also called to meet the needs of others. Now, sometimes it's extremely hard to help someone when they need it. Something about us, whenever someone, when someone asks us to do something, makes us suspicious that they're trying to take advantage of us. And for, for whatever reason, that's, the, that's just the way we are a lot of times. But even though it's okay to be somewhat cautious in our treatment of these people, it's not okay to be so cautious that we don't help others. We've got to help our fellow believers, and even those outside the church. We have to show that Christ-like character toward other people. Paul also says in verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. There's an old saying, which some of you may have heard, which sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Maybe some of you have heard this. Maybe some of you have used it. But it's not true at all. Words have a lot of power. And if we use them improperly, we risk hurting those closest to us. And our words must meet the needs of those around us in order to benefit each other. I'm sure you can all think of things that you said that you now regret because of the way they affected other people. I know I can. But we are called not to do this anymore. That's what Paul wants us to avoid. Instead, he wants us to speak to each other in ways that build each other up. We must encourage each other, as Hebrews 10.24 says, to love and good deeds. We must encourage each other to love and to good deeds. And the final instruction in this chapter is given in verse 32, where Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And because of everything we've talked about so far, because of the renewing of our minds, the changing of our actions, and the putting on of our new self, finally we're called to forgive each other. That's the only way we're, we're even able to put on the new self. It's because God forgave us. He gave us the opportunity to put on that new self, to be renewed continually. God has given us forgiveness. He set the example for us to follow. And we can't just hold on to that. We have to show that to other people as well. Since we've received it, it must be evident in our interactions with other people. And all of these interactions that I mentioned help us grow in Christ and help us look more like him. So in order to grow, we have to look like Christ in our daily lives. But aside from the few ways we've discussed that are mentioned here in this chapter, what does this look like? 
And similar to the people I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, the people I unintentionally copied in my speech and in my habits, it can be as simple as spending time with God, spending time with Christ, Bible reading, prayer. But it also takes a little bit more effort than that on your part. Next time you're tempted to say something derogatory or hurtful, stop. Think about what you're about to do. Is it going to help that other person? Ask yourself that question. Next time you're about to hold on to your anger toward that person you just can't stand, stop. Think about that. Is it going to help your interactions with other people? Are you showing Christ-like character towards these people? Will it help those around me? And as I said, it is not an easy thing to do. It's a very hard thing to do. I struggle with it continually. I, I know I struggle with it. I'm sure some of you struggle with it. But it's a struggle that's worth winning. And here's why. The main thing for which people criticize the church today is not looking like Christ. A man named Mahatma Gandhi is quoted as saying, I love your Christ, but I dislike your Christianity. And that's just sad. He saw the actions of people who called themselves Christians, and he was pushed away from Christianity as a result. That's the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to draw people towards Christ by our actions. But he was pushed away. I strongly believe that if we looked more like Christ, fewer people would refuse Christianity on the basis of our actions. And we must become more like Christ if we want to win this world. But for all of us, our journey to becoming like Christ had to start somewhere. For some of us, it might have started someplace like a church camp. For other people, it might have started in a church. Some of you, it may have started right here. But we don't just magically receive this ability to become like Christ. Like I said, it is a journey. It's a continual process. And maybe you haven't started on this journey. Maybe you're one of those people who loves Christ but dislikes the Christianity you have seen from other people. I'll admit, I mess up. I am not the perfect example. And may, or I may have contributed to some people disliking Christianity. And maybe you've been wrestling with starting on this journey. Maybe you've seen something that, is, that you think, I need that. There's something about that, but I know I need it. Wherever you are on this decision, you can start this journey here today. If you want to give your life to Christ, don't wait any longer. Come forward as we stand and sing.